Chris, I wanted to start off this episode by asking you, do you have a favorite anti-hero? Oh, God. Um, so many. Favorite, though? Mm-hmm. I think, uh, as nerdy as this sounds, um, there's a, a great character in the Green Lantern comics that's been a villain for years and recently has been made more into an anti-hero, um, who's named Sinestro kind of a, a goofy goofball not he's not goofy but like his outfit's goofy and like in the golden age of silver age of comics he was a goofy character but um it's revealed that like his whole shtick his whole thing was that he wanted um peace in the galaxy but he wants to do it through fear by instilling fear in everyone and he's kind of like a dictator which i guess could, could sort of tie into what we're talking about today he's definitely a space he's definitely a space fascist he even has the fascisty haircut like, he's definitely modeled slightly off of Hitler. Mm-hmm. The thing that's kind of, th- that this book we're going to talk about, it made me wonder about anti-heroes is, are there certain types of people, certain character types, even if you try and make them anti-heroes, they're completely unforgivable or unlikable? Yeah, so let's just, let's just, let's just jump right into the, the meat, meat and matter at hand here, because, uh... The book we read is about Nazis. Nazis are the protagonist. And I guess you're supposed to sympathize with at least one of them. I mean, sort of. I mean, he's not, he's not, okay. He's not a Nazi. He's He's a Nazi, but not really. Yeah, well, that's the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I think that's their have your cake and eat it too, right? Like, that's their, hey, uh, we know that we're not going to get people to fucking like Nazis. So let's just make someone who's kind of forced into service with the Nazis the main character. But like throughout the book, uh, which we'll definitely tell you what we're, we've read in a second, everybody, but this this has to happen right now. We can't wait. Uh, throughout the book, most of the main characters on the protagonist side, they will never be called the heroes. They will never be called the good guys because they're not. Uh, but the protagonist side are Nazis. And they do a pretty good job at making you hate most of them, but it still feels weird. I think uh, so many of them get uh, this pass. Like, they have a certain character trait, or they have a certain personal history that kind of, like, is supposed to be... Okay, but third act, third act, that goes right out the window. Like, most of the book, most of the book, it's like, hey, these are regular people, just like anybody in a war. Which, to be fair, is kind of true of a lot of the people in Germany during that time. Uh, there's actually, uh, I think it's called The Little People. There's a really good book about it, about just like normal everyday folk during uh, World War II in Germany and like what their mindset was and the people that just kind of just like went along with everything. Um, but th- this is not that. This is absolutely soldiers that they're good at what they do and like doing it. And most of the book, you kind of forget that. And then the third act comes in and boy, do they remind you. <laughs> All right, before we go any further... This is Dad Lit. I'm uh, your host, Connor, joined by my fellow did you host. Forget, did you forget your name? Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, Air, Air Oberst, uh, as, as they say oh, in the book. Oh, God, no. Don't no. even joke about I'm, that. I'm only going to do that oh, once, no. but uh, I'm oh, joined, joined by my co-host. Uh, I'm Chris. I don't have a, a Nazi title. I'm just a... a humble american you're a yank i'm a yank too but anyways actually yeah. in this book that doesn't even feel great anymore no <laughs> all right and the book we're we're talking about is 
I, I almost just heard... go ahead and pour my whiskey now. I don't have any Glenfiddich. Um, they, they drink Bushmills but... in that quite a bit. Um, oh, is it Bushmills? I thought it was Glenfiddich for some reason. Bushmills. That's right. It is the Bushmills he gets from the, the, the black market. But I don't have any of that, so I'm gonna I'm gonna drink some Bullet instead. All right. Well, the book we're talking about is The Eagle Has Landed by Jack Higgins. Um, came out in 1975. Over 50 million copies sold to date. It's an incredibly, incredibly popular book. Um, I'll give a little kind of two-minute you know, description of what it's about. I don't, I don't know if it's a high concept, but it is about um, a, Nazi, a World War II mission um, for these Nazi paratroopers to parachute into England to kidnap, perhaps assassinate Winston Churchill. Yeah, they don't really know in the beginning because it's kind of a kind of a double dog dare. It's kind of just a, hey, I wish we had really cool uh, paratroopers that could do really cool operations. Hey, uh, guy across the table from me, I want you to test the feasibility of that right now. Yeah, I love the whole feasibility report thing in this, which we'll 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 have to talk more about once we kind of get into uh, the characters. There, there's a great th- there's a great moment where they they just kind of like look at each other and like, w- wait, are are we doing this? <laughs> so let me tell tell a little bit about um, the history of this book. This is like I said, it's a nineteen uh, published in nineteen seventy five bestseller. Um, it was made into a popular movie featuring Michael Caine, Robert Duvall, and Donald Sutherland. That's a great cast. We're going to have we're we're going to be hard pressed to cast that better. So this book was written by Jack Higgins. Jack Higgins uh, is actually a pseudonym for Henry Patterson. So Henry Patterson was born in 1929, uh, English father, Northern Irish mother. Um, his dad ran off when he was young. Uh, growing up, he lived in Belfast, but then he ended up back in England and ended up joining the army and apparently worked on the East German border. Uh, after the army, he uh, moved to uh, he went to the London School of Economics to study sociology, and he started writing thrillers in the fifties. He started writing under the pseudonym Jack Higgins in the late sixties. Uh, had some success, but the Eagle has landed. Has landed is by far his most successful book. And when I was looking up this book, I don't know if you noticed this, but um, in like parentheses, it, oftentimes it's referred to as Liam Devlin series book one. Did you notice that at all? I did. Uh, I was going to ask about it uh, like before we even did any of this. And then that thought just flew right out of my brain and I completely forgot it until just now. Yeah. So Liam Devlin is a, is a character in this book who is a, a fighter with the Irish Republican army. And he's arguably like the main character there. You might kind of split it between him and this other guy, but um, he appears in other, other Jack Higgins books. And Jack Higgins has like several character character series where, you know, these uh, spies and soldiers of fortune reappear. But Liam Devlin is, uh, is in this book and this is called the book one of that series. So, so 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 wait was was there another book with Devlin? Yeah, I, I think there's four Liam Devlin books. There is a sequel to this book, actually. I don't know if you know that. I did not. I also will probably not read it. I I really like the character Liam Devlin, so I might read some more of his books, but uh, maybe further down the line. This is interesting. I think this might be the first time we've disagreed on a main character. 
because I do not like Liam Devlin. Oh, I like him a lot. But all right, so <laughs> let me just so the uh, first edition, 1975, put out by Collins hardcover. Uh, let me describe the the cover art to you. It's it is uh, a sort of sunset background, very like orange and yellow background. The text the eagle has landed is in this kind of nice like royal type font. I would describe. And the main image is this dark eagle that appears to be coming in for landing. And uh, on the uh, the wings of it are illustrated these uh, paratroopers floating through the air. And in the background, it almost looks like there's like a, a little English village uh, in the background. So I, I ended up reading the Berkeley, uh, Berkeley Books paperback edition. Well, now hold on. You ended up reading three different editions that's right because <laughs> <laughs> you you were you had a, a a little bit of misfortune i had a cool edition that had this like when you opened it up on the on the inside of it was uh like it looked like a pencil sketch sketch drawing of like the characters and hitler and mussolini but i left that i was reading it in bed i was staying in a hotel i think i was in clayton new mexico which is like it's just you know, there's not much there. <laughs> so all you listeners out there that we don't have yet, uh, if you are in Clayton, New Mexico, and you found this copy of this book, cool. Well, what was weird is that when I... Whenever, don't return it, just cool. Whenever you check into <laughs> hotels, they or when I've been checking into hotels in New Mexico, they're like, and what's a phone, no- uh, you know, a phone number we can reach you at in case you leave anything in the room? That never gets used. That never gets used. Um and then I read some of it on a Kindle and then I was like, I want to read this book. Like I want a paperback I can take with me. So I ended up getting this kind of basic, uh, uh, 25th anniversary edition. And it on the cover, this one is like a, it is a, like a steel Eagle with a swastika uh, on its chest. Oh no, that's a prime. That is a prime example of a book you absolutely should read on the New York subway. Mm hmm. So there's a trend on Instagram. Uh, several different pages will do it where they'll sh- they'll share um, photos of people with books that they're reading on the subway with weird covers or weird titles. That's absolutely one that would show up uh, on that. Which edition did you read? Uh, well, once again, because I'm entirely too busy and distracted to read a physical book, apparently. Um, I did the audiobook. I did the Brilliance Audio unabridged version, uh, and the photo for the cover is very different from yours. It's a, um, a big orange title, for, or big orange font for his name, and then a white title that's kind of on a slant, and uh, it's all over imposed on a like aerial view of a landscape, and in the corner of it you can see like parachuting people like not even people it's just like a head and shoulders of someone wearing a parachute so it's like apparently you know them jumping out of the plane to to do the drop was it a good it's not it's it's not it's not a great cover oh was it a good narrator uh so i had a lot of trouble he's a great narrator but the problem is he's a narrator for a very um a book series that I love that's a fantasy series and a lot of his voices because he does voices a lot of his voices are the same obviously and I had a lot of trouble uh, disconnecting it from the characters from that series uh, which has happened before it's actually the problem I currently have with um, uh, a book series that we're going to be talking about very soon uh, the Jack Reacher the Jack Reacher series they switched 
audiobook uh, narrators and they use a narrator now that I'm used to reading a different series and I just can't hear him as Jack Reacher. It just doesn't, it doesn't click in my brain. It's not his voice. And that, that's what happened with this. Like as I'm listening to these, this story about Nazis and Irishmen, I'm just like, nope, these are the fantasy characters from that other book. That's got to be weird. It is. I, I almost I almost put it down and bought a physical copy. So so yeah, let me just say let me let me just say right off the bat, everybody, this book. I thought it was a war book. Like going into it, we talked about different genres of dad lit and different things, and we're like, oh yeah, we should do a war fiction, like a war lit. And uh, we talked about a couple, and this was the one that sounded the most interesting. And I was like, cool, yeah, let's do a, a war book. And then going into it and getting into this logistical thriller stuff, I was like, no, this isn't a war book. This is a heist. You know, that's a gr- good way to describe it. It's it, there is a, it has that heist like, all right, and there's only there's only one man who can do this mission, even though it's actually like sixteen men. There's way too many characters in this book. Maybe we should get into the actual like the plot and what goes on. Oh, holy shit! So I'm I'm looking through your notes and a couple of comments but the first one is i see the 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 cover art you're talking about that's some fucking dope cover art it's pretty 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 cool the orange one not the one with the swastika the the orange eagle and in the in the negative space of the eagle's wings are the like parachuting people it's really cool yeah it's it's Um, pretty neat so the thing i wanted to comment about your notes is that you you gave me a character list which i thank you for but uh part way down this character list um I don't believe this is a real word in any language. You put Hauptstabsfeldwebel Otto Brandt. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm sure that's a, I'm sure that's a rank, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Oh, Hauptstabsfeld. Oh, oh gosh. Let's talk a bit about the plot. And one thing I, I want to start off with, and it's, it's at the beginning, which is a good place to start, is the framing device. The two framing devices, really, for this story. Because there's a prologue, and the prologue... Yeah, can we talk about how this book is, is um, po- posed as nonfiction? It's, yeah, well, let me read the, the prologue, because it's very short. But then I, I want to talk about the first chapter as well, because... All right, uh, so very quickly, uh, here's the prologue. At precisely one o'clock in the morning of Saturday, November 6, 1943, Heinrich Himmler, Reichsführer of the SS and Chief of State Police, received a simple message. The Eagle has landed. It meant that a small force of German paratroopers were at that moment safely in England and poised to snatch the British British Prime Minister Winston Churchill from the Norfolk country house where he was spreading, spending a quiet weekend near the sea. This book is an attempt to recreate the events surrounding that astonishing exploit. At least 50% of it is documented historical fact. The reader must decide for himself how much of the rest is a matter of speculation or fiction. Okay. It's a little, a little prompting, a little framing of the story. I, I, I understand that it's, I don't, in my research and in my just general approach to the book, I didn't think it was a true story. I thought that this was just a way to kind of hype up the reader, right? I love the way that they end this book. I mean, and by love it, I kind of hate it, but uh, I love, we'll get to it. But on the note of it being like, maybe it's real. It's not. 
Oh no. Um, and and the end of the end of the book just slaps you in the face with it. Um, but but that so th- then the chapter one is I I think it must take place in like the sixties or seventies. But we're not yet in World War Two. We, we we chapter one is Jack Higgins the writer uh, talking about uh, a project where he was researching um, like uh, graves for some some magazine. Are you telling me that a man that writes under a fake name might have lied about something? Uh, that's exactly what I'm telling you. What? The first chapter, he, he he's in this uh, this little uh, town. Do you remember the name of the town? Uh, are you talking about Studley Constable? Studley Constable, yeah, yeah. I'm, how could I? For- how could I forget that name? I, how could I? But it's like it's yes. Yeah, uh, so he's in Studley Constable. He's at this church. He's looking through the graveyard, um, looking for a particular grave, and then he finds this little kind of like hidden uh, gravestone that says, you know, dedicated to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kurt Steiner and the thirteen Germans who died here, nineteen like November sixth, nineteen forty three. And he's like, Whoa, what is that about? Yeah, I really don't understand um how that gravestone ended up in that graveyard at all, considering how this story goes. Um also that like totally sets like Kurt Steiner up as being like I guess you said there are like two protagonists, but they like the first chap- chapters of this book are like Kurt Steiner's the main character and he is barely in the story like it's fine yeah he to me um Devlin is the main character because he has like a romantic kind of uh, Devlin is the main character because this book is called the Devlin series book one yeah that kind of settles it you know no more conversation <laughs> on that matter but so anyway so he finds this gravestone he starts asking around and the 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 priest, Father Veriker, is like, "Dude, get out of here! Just don't ask questions." And he—you actually pronounced it. You actually pronounced it accidentally, right, the first time. That because that is the one good thing about audiobooks is you hear pronunciations. Uh, it is it is pronounced Verica. Oh, Verica. Oh, well, Verica or Veriker. It's Verica, Verica. but it, I'm butchering it in my American accent. Okay, oh. so Verica, Father Verica, yep. who's this old priest is like, get out of here, don't ask questions. The locals as well are like, listen, man, you're like, you're you're sniffing up the wrong tree here. But there is one kind of um, wily drunkard. Uh, he is the uh, the grave digger, and uh, Jack Higgins starts playing him with drinks, and uh, eventually he just says, well, oh yeah, Kurt Steiner was. Uh, he was part of that group of German paratroopers who came here to kidnap uh, Mr. Churchill. And that's how chapter one ends. And uh, chapter two is like, okay, now we're back in 1943. Which I just want to point out, if you want the first act, like not, not including the prologue, the first act of your book to have any sort of tension on uh, what, is this gonna happen are they gonna go are they gonna make it is the parachute drop gonna happen don't start your book being like hey yeah all these germans were here well i see my my main issue is that the the prologue and chapter one kind of like they kind of do the same thing you know like they're kind of like oh that's what i'm saying it wastes it wastes a lot of time and does it's redundant it's a redundancy yeah i understand it's it's supposed to be um 
establishing the author in his book as like this is a documentary like i went and around and talked to people but like i said like it it shatters all of the suspense because a lot of the book is like maybe they're not going to make it maybe the the all of these plans that we have to put forth for how they're going to get in and parachute and stuff like and are like it's it that whole illusion is gone like it's just shattered by the the prologue well i i kind of had a different feeling on it i mean i didn't expect that they were going to kill winston churchill at the end no not at all not at all but if if your if your prologue pretty much tells your whole book story of hey uh that gravestone says nazis died here and then the gravedigger says yeah nazis came here to kidnap winston churchill and this book is under the guise of being a true story, you would have to then conclude, oh, well, they failed. No, they, they made it. To, they made it. They all died there because there's a gravestone and they failed. So, like, you gave away the whole plot of your goddamn book in the first the first act. Not even. Well, one and one thing that I, I thought that it that it did that was interesting is it kind of establishes that, oh God, maybe they have like some sympathy for these paratroopers, like, or some reverence for them. You know, it's like, they didn't like, like throw them into the English channel and you know, okay. spit on they their grave. They did do one good thing while they were there. Well, it's a very important thing, but, uh, okay. So let's go on to chapter two. Um, and this is I'm trying to think if this is the first book I've read where like you're, you're listening to Hitler and Mussolini and Himmler talk to each other. So, so chapter two. It's definitely the first book I've read that does that. They're talking about, um, they're in Berlin and Hitler is there. The whole, the whole gang is there and Benito Mussolini is there as well. And they're discussing something called the Grand Sasso Raid, which was a, a, a real event that happened. Um, and they're talking about this, this hero, uh, Otto Skorzeny. And basically what happened in, is that um, Italy was preparing to surrender to the Allied powers. And the uh, I think it was like the, called the Fascist Council um, uh, voted no confidence for Mussolini, uh, kicked him out of office, arrested him. And he ended up uh, in this I think the Grand Sasso mountain range in this hotel on top of a mountain. And uh, Hitler, um, using this... SS um, sort of uh, kind of like special ops guy mounted this raid to rescue Mussolini and and bring him to Berlin. And they did it by landing uh, gliders on top of this mountain. And they launched an attack against like the sort of uh, the not ski lift, but like the the funicular lift that goes up there. And it was a pretty cool friends there. I don't think I'd ever have friends that would mount some sort of special ops raid to rescue me. Well, you're wrong because I absolutely would. But uh, <laughs> so, but uh, in I'll hold you to that. What's that? Let me go do some crazy crimes don't. real quick and <laughs> necessitate this rescue. <laughs> but, yeah, it's better off that you just don't end up in a in a mountaintop prison. But uh, but what, uh, in reading about this, it, it seems that this guy Otto Scorsini was. Uh, it was a largely uh, a propaganda. It was this was a mission completed by uh, a lot of different parties. You know, um, uh, uh, not just paratroopers, not just this guy, but uh, essentially this one uh, Otto Scorzani character kind of got lifted up as as the hero of this. You know, to to sort of promote him uh, as propaganda. The Scorzani 
guy was uh, part of the SS and Himmler's sort of like, you know, bragging about it. He's like, well, it doesn't surprise me. It went so well. He's with the SS. We're the best. And we immediately see this competition and infighting amongst the various uh, military and police groups within, uh, you know, Germany. There's the Abwehr, the military intelligence. There's the uh, the army itself. There's the SS. And um, Hitler mentions, you know, listen, we have we spent all this money at developing this military intelligence special operations squad, the Brandenburgers. Shouldn't they have been the ones to do this? Like, come on, guys, let's let's you know, let's shake things up. Let's be doing more stuff like this. He says, listen, you know, you guys should be able to deliver me Winston Churchill in person, given how much money and time and resources I've allocated for these special operations. And Heinrich Himmler basically kind of eggs him on and is like, we, sh- we could do that. We should do that. And it's the um, head of military intelligence, uh, Admiral Canaris, the Abwehr, who is tasked with this. He says, I want you to look into that. I want you to see if you can put it together to, uh, to, to kidnap Winston Churchill and bring him to me. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the uh, 1940s version of, like, get good. Like... Hey, we need to be cooler. What can we do to be cooler? Hey, how about we do this fictional thing and make it like a real thing? I mean, it wasn't fictional. They did rescue Mussolini, but like, like, like you said, it's blown out of proportion. And there's like a guy that's raised up as a hero, and they're like, "Hey, yeah, we we could actually do this though, like more often." Uh, see, go go see if we could. Did you kind of sense like in this that? It seems that Mussolini is supposed to be kind of freaked out by Hitler. Like Mussolini's like. This guy's crazy. I do not want to be here. I do love. I I do love two fascists in a room sizing each other up, sort of, and and Hitler just, just. Hey, I'm comfortable. I'm I'm around all my friends. This is great. And Mussolini being like, ha ha ha, yeah, yeah. It it there it it, <laughs> it it does kind of like. It, it, you can imagine it in like a Doctor Strange love, uh, you know, like a Doctor Strange love scene. Um, that movie's great. Oh yeah, but so. All right, so all this happens. Uh, Canaris is is kind of like, oh god, now I have to deal with this, and it's it's made clear that most people are pessimistic and they think that the war, their Germany is losing the war and will lose the war, so they're not that interested in in anything like this. They think you know this is you know we need to we need to acknowledge reality here and not be trying to throw some Hail Mary pass. I think I actually, looking back on it, I think I actually enjoyed the political procedural part of this book more. There's a lot of the stuff later on that, um, I, I don't know, I, I, didn't, I didn't really dig a lot of the action in the later part of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the heist portion is fine, but like, I thought the beginning portion was kind of cool, even though it's it, a lot of people would consider it kind of boring or whatever. But like just seeing the workings of German government, which who knows if this is at all accurate to how things were behind closed doors in Germany, uh, but uh, this interpretation of what it could have been like was interesting to me. I, I often find. I never think I'm going to find it interesting, but I often find political procedurals interesting. Well, on that note, let me share something because I, I, I another book I read a few years ago and I, I pu- pulled off my shelf for this 
is it's called uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, and it's by Hannah Arendt. And she covered the trial. This was originally published as a series of articles, I think, um, I think in the, what is it, like the New York, New York Times, maybe? I don't know. But um, she covered that trial and wrote a lot about, like, how Eichmann viewed himself as an innocent man. And uh, this this uh, section seems relevant, and, and it's related to Himmler, who is basically, I think, the biggest villain of this of uh, the book we read. But here's what Hannah... Hold, hold on, hold on. Uh, just for a moment on what you said. So I want to point out something to the readers. Many of you are readers. God damn it. Listeners. The listeners. Listeners. Uh, if you're not a writer or if you're not into reading a lot of fiction or consuming a lot of uh, fictional media, a good villain doesn't think they're a villain. A good villain thinks they're the hero of their story. And, like, I find it hard to understand people in, like, World War II, in Nazi Germany, um, Mussolini, uh, all these other people that were part of the Axis, like... I, I have, find it really hard to believe how they could feel like they were the hero of their story. Well, here, here listen to this because it, it kind of gets into that a little bit. So here, here's uh, from Eichmann in Jerusalem. The member of the Nazi hierarchy most gifted at solving problems of conscience was Himmler. He coined slogans like the famous watchword of the SS taken from a Hitler speech before the SS in 1931. Quote, my honor is my loyalty. Um, he, but blind, hold on, but, but, but before you, blind loyalty is not heroic. It's, it's not honorable. If you're blindly loyal to a monster, like, cool quote, bro, but it's not good. So this is a, this is a quote uh, that Himmler said. All right. These are battles which future generations will not have to fight again. He was alluding to the battles against women, children, old people, and other, quote, useless mouths. So uh, and here's another one. Um, the order to solve the Jewish question. This was the most frightening order an organization could ever receive. So he kind of like is acknowledging, yeah, this is nasty business. But listen, you know, we just got to get this over with. And, you know, for Germany, do it for Germany. So, so is, is he literally saying it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it? I mean, yeah, right. That's you could. I think that that's what it kind of comes out to. A- anyways, let's let's go on with the story. So then we're introduced to Colonel Rattle. Colonel Rat- Rattle meets with Admiral Admiral Canaris, and Canaris says, "Listen, H- Hitler wants to do a feasibility, or Hitler wants to kidnap Churchill. Let's just do a feasibility study. Um, look into it. Put together." I think they actually do. I think they actually do word it as Hitler wants to look into the feasibility of it. Like, yeah. Yeah, but basically he's like, listen, we got... Because like I said, most they, they kind of pitch this as a what if in, until that study comes back. Yeah, and and Canaris is thinking like, Hitler has a lot of crazy ideas. It'll be, Next week it's going to be kidnapping, you know, uh, Frederick Roosevelt. Like, you know, don't worry too much about it, but, you know, due diligence. Let's do our due diligence. And uh, Rattle goes back to his office. Rattle... He's missing one of his hands and one of his eyes, and uh, he is in terrible health um, because he is a veteran of what is referred to in this book as the Winter War, which was the battle in uh, Russia 
uh, battles in you know Stalingrad and Leningrad, which Higgins makes a point to emphasize that they are they were extremely brutal and difficult and just very hard on people. And Rattle has they always, a they always have they always have been like uh, World War One and World War Two and dealing with Russia is always the hardest part of any of it, and Germany has always been afraid of it because like it's just awful battlegrounds it's awful conditions yeah and uh rattle has a a winter war medal and medals are referenced often in this book it's a way for uh soldiers in this uh, to kind of get a quick history of each other like if you see another soldier with a winter war medal they have respect for each other they're like okay you might be a paper pusher right now but Clearly, you've been through some shit. And rattle. Yeah, you're yeah. a paper. You're you're a paper pusher right now because you got injured in the winter war. Holy shit, dude. Yeah, and rattle also has a. He seems to enjoy smoking these Russian cigarettes, which are described as like very harsh and just kind of cheap. And you know, he picked up this yeah, habit. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah, I. I mean, I. Yeah. I had I had a cheap cigar the other day. Do not recommend. He also really likes drinking cognac. Also do not recommend. Yeah, I'm not a big cognac person. Um, uh, but he's in really poor health, and he said, he's like, you know, I don't have much time left. But he does have a family. We don't really meet his family, but he references a, a, a wife and a daughter. So anyway, so Rattle is charged with this feasibility study. He talks to uh, his sort of his assistant. Uh, I thought this was kind of a f- neat relationship. Him and Carl Hofer is his assistant who um, helps him do research and um, Hofer ends up, uh, he gets a, a, a report and brings it to Rattle and is like, this seems relevant to our feasibility study. And what this report is, is, is a report from a spy in England, uh, Starling, she goes by the name, but her real, her, her, her real name is Joanna Gray. And Joanna Gray is giving information to the Nazis um, and she has come across information that Winston Churchill is going to be in a this particular place at this particular time. And ordinarily, this information would be kind of, you know, who cares, whatever. But now it seems like this is this is perfect. This is where we can do this mission. Yeah, it's a quiet, quiet little village kind of near the sea. Uh, there's not a lot of security there's like possible ways to get a boat in because she can figure out where the breaks in the mines are yeah and so in joanna gray's another kind of character that we're you know she is sympathetic uh, perhaps supportive of the nazi cause because not because she herself is a you know um cruel and evil person but because of her own personal history once again once again folks that are listening the good villains don't think they're villains they think they're doing the good thing yeah her her family it describes uh her family they're afrikaners um she was she's originally from southern africa and her family was torn apart uh, to the as part of the uh, Boer Wars, which were wars between these um, Boer, these two, uh, well, it was between the British Empire and these Boer republics, and uh, her family was treated, you know, terribly, uh, ended up in a, a concentration camp uh, in southern Africa uh, run by the the British, 
and she lost her mom and I think it says she lost her daughter as well so she became very very anti-British and I think that's like another thing in this book is that the people they're not pro-Nazi they're just anti-British I don't blame them after learning about World War One uh I'm not too fond of the British either and they kind of like tried to like take over a lot of the world and were pretty nasty to a lot of people um, I mean, it's it's empire, but, it's it's imperialism. So yeah. So, but I I also think that it's sort of after a while, after meeting character after character, who's like, listen, I'm really not that bad. I just don't like the British. It's like, okay, yeah, but you're 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 a Nazi as well. So let's let's not forget that. Um, and that's and that's actually one of the reasons Rattle uh supports this mission. He, he starts to see it come together. And he, he says at some point, you know, we're not going to win the war and kidnapping Churchill is not going to win the war, but it could bring about a negotiated peace. Um, it could give us some leverage for how we end this war and make it so we're not just the losers. Now, that's an antihero. That, that is a complex motivation, right? But he also at times says he's motivated also by fear because he knows if he messes this up, Himmler is going to kill him and his family, which... Uh, we see that Himmler is, you know, this completely sadistic, uh, uh, personal, you know, personally sadistic person. He goes after people's families. See, now that's that's the ma- that's the major difference. So, in most, I don't think most. I, I I feel pretty comfortable saying most people don't want war. Like most normal people don't want war. If you are like directly profiting from war. I don't even think you really want the war. You just want money. But, like, most people see war as a necessary means to peace. Like, we, we are fighting for peace, and therefore we have to go to war. This book tries to do something that is done much better in the Ian Fleming book, Casino Royale. Which is Which is what? Casino Royale has uh, um, specifically a scene that was cut from the movie that I disagree with being cut, where Bond is in James Bond. For those yeah. of you listening that don't know what Casino Royale <laughs> is, uh, Bond is in a hospital recovering from horrible torture by La Chiffre and the um, Smirsh agent that leaves him alive but injured, and Bond is in a deep melancholy about thinking about being a spy and being like look that other guy the guy that didn't kill me the guy that should have killed me the guy that could have killed me but instead just scarred me he's me he's he's serving his country he's doing his best job to find peace the way that his country has ordered him to and bond has this crazy um struggle like momentarily struggle with morals and being like what am I doing? What are they doing? We're the same. And that that works that works really well in most discussions until you bring Nazis. Well, I, I, Band of Brothers has a, a scene where basically there's all these Nazis they've captured and their general like gives a speech to, hit, to, to his soldiers and it's like, listen, we've been through a lot. War, this war has really been awful. And Winters is like listening and someone's translating it for him. And it, it's meant to convey, it's just like, you know, we we're just soldiers, but again, they're Nazis. It's you're not just so. <laughs> That's the problem. That's the problem. It's like if if this was about any other war, about any other two parties, 
Like, it's fine, but the fact that the Nazis did all that extra awful bullshit, the, the fact that they tried to commit not just a genocide against the Jews, but tried to eliminate, like, blacks, tried to, like, go after any sort of minority and tried to, like, su- like put themselves, the Aryan race, above everyone else and take over the world, just destroys any any kind of good faith that you could have in a war what this situation. book does and what other stories do is it it sh- it tries to show that listen just because you were a german soldier you were not rounding up um jewish children and and it, it this tries to sort of relegate that behavior to the ss primarily and it's always the ss agents who are like like again sadistic and just you know cruel and psycho yeah. yeah the the main the main ss agent that goes along with this mission is is not liked no. even amongst his own people no not at all i mean he's a he's a very not likable person but let me let me get through uh, yeah i don't think anyone i don't i don't think anyone liked the ss i don't think the ss liked the ss well this uh so uh, let me just get into to to how how it's the mission starts starts and from there there's there's a lot I'm just gonna gloss over but so basically uh, things are coming together looks like they can do this mission uh, they're starting to plan how they can do it Canaris is like listen we're not doing this but then um, a rattle gets in basically I was gonna say invited but he more just gets escorted and taken to this Prinz Albuquerque um, office which is the command of uh, where the SS command that was good. You you, you pronounced that. <laughs> Thank really you. Well. And he meets Himmler, and Himmler's like, "No, we're we're doing this. We, we're going forward with this. Um, don't tell Canaris. He doesn't need to know. Um, besides, we think he's we think he might be a, a traitor, anyways." In this book, they're very quick to the the SS is very quick to call people traitors, especially if they're not kind of on board with what Himmler wants to do. Um. And uh, Rattle um, realizes that he's going to need some someone who speaks English for this mission because basically they're going to drop into England. They're going to be disguised as British paratroopers so they can get around, and then they're going to kidnap Churchill. So they're going to have to go in disguise. They need someone who can speak the language. Yeah, so they, they've they've gotten word from they've gotten word from Joanna Gray, the the girl who's li- been living in this village that. Um, military operations around the area are not unheard of and so if they go in as a group of british or i thought they i thought they went as so it is a they're gonna go in as a british paratrooper unit but basically a unit of uh polish uh fighters fighting in the british british army so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it so yeah that 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 kind of disguises a little bit of their like horrible accent and stuff but um, uh, yeah, so they decide to go in as a, a, a group of uh, British Polish soldiers that are on a opera like a, a training operation. Yeah, and and they 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 look into the feasibility of how they're going to get in. Um, Joanna Gray, you, you kind of get like a little bit of a like a day in the life of Joanna Gray and her like going about and talking to this like very very british yeah. guy that lives in the town. sir henry willoughby um yeah oh my god he's caricature boastful british. loud he yeah like just oh like, hello yeah like like uh, oh yes good yeah. chap uh, i mean it's impl- it's, it seems like the 
someone, someone, someone who definitely toured in India and wore a pith helmet. They're 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 sleeping um, with each other though, right? Like that that's that happens, right? I they allude to it. He fancies her for sure, but I don't think it, the deed has been uh, done. Yeah, I. <laughs> I think that's the point. I think that's the point is that she can manipulate him the way she does because it. Has and and he's the one that actually kind of le- loose lips sink ships. He he's the one that tells her. Yeah, he gets fucking. He gets fucking. He gets fucking. He's one of those. He's one of those people um, who are just like completely not trustworthy and are just like, listen, don't tell anyone I told you this. It's like. You always say that. Maybe you should stop telling people this stuff. Like, maybe you need to like. Hey, hey, listener, listeners at home. If someone tells you, hey, don't tell anybody this, they were probably told that by somebody that said, hey, don't tell exactly. anybody this. And you're probably gonna tell somebody under the guise of don't tell anybody this. But yeah, so so she she finds out through him about spots in the beach where there aren't mines because they go on a romantic stroll and uh she finds out like about the whole thing with winston churchill through him and so she supplies all this information through a hidden room in her house where there's a secret passageway where she can use a radio and send all this information and they go through the uh there's the mon. It's not exactly a montage, but the whole like let's put the team together. Yes, montage. yes. It, it, and that's the that's the point. That's the point at which I was like, hey, this isn't a war novel. This is a heist. yes. And so they 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 get the perfect people for the job. And they this guy Kurt Steiner is uh, Steiner um, is Lieutenant Colonel Kurt Steiner. He's born of a an American. Uh, let me let me try it. Let me try it. Hold on. Let, let me try. It. It's a uh, Kurt, Kurt Steiner. Steiner. Uh, he is the uh, the son yeah. of uh, um, uh, an American woman and a German father. His his father is actually very high up in the military, and he is uh, very well educated. He can speak English. He was uh, educated in London and Paris, so he's kind of the perfect guy to lead this job. And he is he is the com- he's the commander Almost. of this crack paratrooper unit and you know so we meet him he's he's sort of uh he's he got in trouble he was court-martialed so he's basically been given this suicide mission to kind of like you know for to for the rest of his time in the military he's actually part of the luftwaffe i I looked it up the the paratroopers are part of the german air air force so to speak but um we we find out that at some point he got into a scrap with the SS because he happened to um, sort of just by chance uh, stop in a town where the SS were rounding up children and uh, Jewish people. And he is like, not, he didn't like that. And uh, he basically get, you know, helps this little girl jump on a train to escape. And he, you know, tells the SS that they're, they're shit. And uh, there's almost a, a gunfight. Um, and because of that, you know, he's he's court-martialed and he's in trouble. And uh, again, another character where it's like yeah. So that so they so they literally sit they literally send him on a mission, which is how they introduce him, uh, where he and his team ride on. Yeah, it's called Operation Swordfish, <laughs> but um, it's ridiculous. It's fucking. I mean, it's absolutely shit that they did in the war. But 
it's ridiculous. It's hey, here's a torpedo for a motorcycle. Drive it toward this boat. So he, but, but uh, so we learn about him. We learn his backstory. And again, another character where it's just like, yeah, but he's a really noble person. You know, it's like, no, he's a Nazi. Yeah, but he helped that little girl. Didn't you? Don't you remember? <laughs> um, well, helping helping children is the downfall of uh, all these characters. We'll get to that in a bit. But anyways, we meet. Then we meet. Um, we. Uh, Rattle determines that Joanna Gray, she's old, I think she's like 66 she, she I, I, I love, I love, I love the way that you pronounce it. Rattle? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you the all correct right. pronunciation, but I, I like it better. I like yours uh, better. Alright, well Colonel Rattle <laughs> he, he <laughs> determines that Joanna Gray is going to need someone to help her to basically lay the groundwork for these paratroopers to get there. Um, that you know she's she's a bit older. That she, we need someone quick on their feet, and this is where we're introduced to the character of Liam Devlin, and he is a fighter with the Irish Republican Army who was living in Berlin at the time of this story, and basically his background is that you know he's a wanted man in Ireland. Um, the the Abwehr has been trying to court the IRA for some time, trying to recruit people because uh, to, to attack the British. Because their, their sort of talking point was, well, listen, you know, we, we don't like the British, you don't like the British, let's work together. But it, it was ultimately unsuccessful. So Liam, Liam Devlin is in Berlin because he, he's a wanted man. He, he can not get arrested if he's in Germany. And he's brought in by Rattle. And uh, basically, you know, he's like, listen, we, we need someone on the ground who can blend in and is good at this sort of stuff. We want you. And... Uh, Devlin is uh, he he basically accepts the mission and then then he's like, but you're going to pay me as well. One thing I want to talk about with Devlin and these other soldiers more is they're kind of like have this like shared sense of adventure. At one point, Devlin refers to himself as the last great adventurer. That's that's when uh, when he meets Steiner and the next the next chapter we meet Steiner and he is, you know, uh, offered the mission and from there, things it, it kind of just goes into preparation. Um, eventually, uh, Himmler has one of his men accompany uh, Steiner on the mission. And Steiner does not like that because this man is not a trained paratrooper. More importantly, this man is actually a part of something, I think it's called the British Free Corps. So this character's name is uh, Harvey Preston. And he is a, he's a traitor yeah. to England. He was uh, captured by the Germans and basically offered, you know, you can fight for us in the British Free Corps. And that's what he did. From there, they they, they assemble more of the team. They get someone who's going to uh, drive this boat to pick them up when they're done. They get a hotshot pilot who's going to drop them in. And uh, Devlin is on the ground, moving around, uh, getting supplies for the men. It, once again, it's it, it feels like a heist because what you have is... All right, I'm gonna go into this town and get implanted as like uh, a groundskeeper or whatever. So uh, he gets a job, he gets a place to live, and he starts immediately, immediately macking on this under not underage, but like way younger girl in the town. Yeah, yeah. they fall and in love. That's like a major plot point that we'll get on in a second. But while while he's while he's doing that, um, which kind of killed him as a character for me, but uh, 
while he's doing that, he's navigating around the black market of the area, and he he makes contact with some shady figures and makes deals for some vehicles and some paint and some supplies. In doing so, he has to like threaten and posture against these black market guys, and they don't like that. And the one guy plays it real smooth and offers him uh, alcohol and uh, gives him like a good yeah bushmills and uh, is really really kind to him and gives him a good deal and the other black market guy's like what are you doing and he's like this guy's up to something and I want in like I want to know more about it and you immediately as a person who understands movies and understands a heist are like alright cool this is gonna be a wrench that's thrown in the works this is gonna cause a problem well, they they do try they try and like kind of double crop not double crop but they they try to weasel their way into this plot even though they don't know what the plot is they know something's up and that they want a cut of it and during during one of the during one of the pickups we're jumping ahead a little bit we're gonna jump around it's fine during one of the pickups where he goes back to get another one of the vehicles um, they they try to posture against him they have like they're waiting there with some guns and he commandos in on them. And blows out the guy's kneecap and completely just like outsmarts there trying to outsmart him. He shoots him in the knee and they they make a point of say, a point of saying in the book. Well, that's like the IRA punishment for for double crossing or betraying someone is you get shot in the kneecap. It's like a very specific punishment reserved for this kind of crime. And that's the thing that bothers me. Is like that scene is really well done really well carried out all of the intrigue up to this point is really well handled um but uh the the guy has a bad knee injury his friend is trying to doctor it up and he can't really do a good job and he's like i'm gonna take you to a hospital he's like don't take me to a hospital because the cops are gonna get involved and then he ends up going to the hospital and the cops get involved and you're like oh no now now the cops are involved they end up kind of finding out that Devlin did this because Devlin has to file a bunch of paperwork once he gets into England. And um, so they end up finding out that it was him and they're like, well, let's go out there and arrest him. And they go out there, but, but it, like, it, it leads to nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of, as I was say, it's kind of a red herring. It's just, it's just tension for the sake of tension. It's, Oh no, the cops are going to ruin everything. Um, but yeah, that, once again, we're jumping way ahead. So at this point, at, at this point, he comes in, he becomes this warden, and he starts um, m- making some moves to get some gear for the team. Meanwhile, the team are doing like practice with the plane, and they're in this area called Landsvort, which is basically where they're they're kind of like planning the mission and getting organized. They gotta, they gotta try, they gotta, they gotta try to train a couple of people because there's that Harvey Preston guy that doesn't know fuck all about parachuting. Steiner is very serious about the preparation, and you kind of get to see him. He, he is a, he's a charming, like personally, like charming character. But then you kind of see him go into like work mode and how serious he is about this stuff. And there's some time spent on that. He's a professional. He's a professional. Don't they? Th- don't they get him to cooperate because they're holding his father yeah and and um 
his father's being tortured by uh, the SS for uh, treason. And it's revealed that his father was disillusioned with Nazis. It's not clear if he was actually like plotting something, you know, to like overthrow Hitler. But um, he obviously, you know, in this in a, this hyper policed environment, he was arrested by the SS and he's being tortured. Man, I really hope nothing bad happens to that guy later. Well, he ends up dying. Oh no! <laughs> so. <laughs> I have I have a little bit of uh, some what I what I thought was peak dadlet material um, when they're training. One thing they're training with are these things called Sten machine guns, Sten guns, and the, yeah, which I thought I thought was purely science. They're fiction. real, man. Um, I've, I've I've been informed by Connor, the co-host, <laughs> that they are in fact real. And folks, the reason the reason why I say that I think these are science fiction is that they're supposedly super silent guns. So chapter nine opens up with a gun nerd passage. The Sten machine carbine was probably the greatest mass-produced weapon of the Second World War and the standby of most British infantrymen. Shoddy and crude it may have looked, but it could stand up to more ill treatment than any other weapon of its type. It came to pieces in seconds and would fit into a handbag or the pockets of an overcoat, a fact which made it invaluable to the various European resistance groups to whom it was parachuted by the British. Drop it in the mud, stamp on it, and it would still kill as effectively as the most expensive Thompson gun. Um, The MK2S version was specially developed for use by commando units fitted with a silencer which absorbed the noise of the bullet explosions to an amazing degree. The only sound when it fired was the clicking of the bolt, and that could seldom be heard beyond a range of 20 yards. I looked it up online and watched some videos. It is a very, very quiet gun. Uh, I'm looking at I'm looking at pictures of it without the silencer. It kind of just looks like a grease gun. It's it's just a it it's a picture. Anyone who's listening who is a a gamer, and you've ever played any of the any of the Fallout games, it looks like one of the fucking rubbish rust guns that you get from the wasteland. It's just like a cylinder. You snap a a, a magazine into it. That's just a, a really small straight magazine. And the butt of it isn't even a butt. It's just some wire work that's kind of shaped to look like a butt of a gun. Look it up. It, it, it's, and then with the silencer, you basically just attach a gigantic piece of pipe over the barrel. And like looking at it, I can't possibly imagine that it's as good as they described. It, it, it really is. When you when I've the videos I've seen of people firing it, you just hear the bolt clicking. That's ridiculous. Cause guns today don't do that. I I don't. I thought about the same thing. I was like, gosh, if this was a World War II gun, like, I don't. I don't. Why don't we have silent guns maybe now? We, maybe we don't. I don't know that much about guns, but maybe there is something out there. But it. So uh, th- that I thought was kind of a one of those dad litty moments where it's like of course i'm going to tell you all about this really cool gun um so they're training with those weapons uh you know um um, the character of molly and devlin they uh their relationship develops you know they uh they're molly molly's Uh, molly's uh, their relationship develops it's sure Everybody, everybody hates him. Every, like, hey, I'm gonna go in and work the the, the, the city, and 
and be here as a man on the ground and I'm my first act is going to be to piss off literally everyone in town and draw attention to myself and get in a fist fight oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and 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 then I'm gonna talk to myself in my internal dialogue and to dialogue with others about how this is a bad idea because it can only possibly compromise the mission. And then I'm gonna do it anyway. Because fuck it. I don't really want to be here. And sex. It's supposed to like humanize this character, and it just made me. Well, like, he's a rom. He's a like he's a romantic poet. He teaches he teaches literature at, at the University of Berlin. He's like a professor. Um, he he there's there's one scene where they're they're laying in bed together, and uh, he's frequently reading poetry. And she he, Molly notices he's writing poetry, and she asks if she can read it. And I want to read that right now because um, I I kind of like it. <laughs> it's it's like two it's like not even a stanza, but okay. Um, what's this? She opened it. Poetry. He grinned, a matter of opinion in some quarters. Yours, she said, and there was genuine wonder on her face. She opened it at the place where he had been writing the, that morning. Quote, there is no certain knowledge of my passing, where I have walked in woodland after dark. She looked up. Why, that's beautiful, Liam. I like it because it's like, it's a poem about him being a spy and like all the stuff he's doing. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like I would read a book of poetry about like being a spy and has a lot of natural imagery in it. Like that'd be kind of fun. Yeah, I, I, I did like the poetry bit. Like that's the part of his character I probably like the most. But this is so, so listeners, when we set out on this venture to talk about Dadlet. Uh, we talked about what what is dadlit and um, like what kind of justifies it not justifies it but like what kind of encapsulates it and one of the things that is is the um, representation maybe possibly the poor representation of of, of, of women and uh, we've read some good books like there's been some books that have surprised me ones that I thought were gonna be bad that I didn't have like a good memory of. Um, this is not that. This is the book where they talk about uh, a, a very young girl's skirt hiking up when she's praying in church, and they talk about it a lot. And and this is a book where the main character takes advantage of this girl uh, under the under the full knowledge that he's about to probably hurt a lot of people in this town and and commit uh you know horrible war crimes and stuff um and most likely going to fuck up the political assassination because of wanting to fucking get his wick wet with this girl like literally he's like i'm gonna throw it all away because i want to have sex one last time before i die on this suicide mission it's like i'm sorry dude it doesn't have to be a suicide mission you're making it one by doing this listeners you should know it is not as crude as chris described it is crude i will say that it's pretty crude i'll say this that it i do think that it was intended to be viewed as like they're they're in love this is like just romantic beautiful love she is absolute she is absolutely in love i don't buy that he's in love she's she's absolutely enamored by the new guy in town the stranger that seems mysterious 
and gives her strange looks as he's driving by and strange looks in church and he is willing to go on walks with her and also like the older man that's that's very handsome and has a, a nice accent like she's enamored he turns on the the irish charm he's taking advantage of her and literally everyone in town even the german spy that is working with him is like dude chill <laughs> chill bro chill yeah like dude you're out of line like I said, I feel like it was supposed to humanize this character, and it did the opposite for me. So, so it, she is as their court as, as this courtship develops continues. She begins to suspect that something's sure, going sure, on. Sure, sure, a courtesan. Yeah, she see she finds a gun in his bag. She ends up seeing the jeep, and basically he tells her kind of like the f- I think the first thing she finds is that just a bundle of money that just she knocks over out of a bag. And the gun and just a bundle of money falls out. And she's just like, oh, my God, that's the most money I've ever seen. And he tells her, like, basically, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting involved in the black market. And she's like, I don't like it, but, you know, whatever, you know. Um, I don't like it, but I'm enamored by you. So the the mission, eventually, the, the mission launches. It's a go. Churchill's going to be there. Um, they Part of it is, like, they, they hire this. Well, they don't hire. They, they find this, like pilot who's going to fly this uh um, you know like a paratrooper plane i don't know what you call like a cargo plane or whatever that they've done up it's a it's it's like a um it's a british plane plane, yeah it's a british plane so that when they get in the area they they if if british patrols see them they won't immediately shoot them down and yeah and it's done up you know paint you know painted and then and they get immediately shot down. Well, they're they're just, <laughs> as soon as the mission starts, things are not good. It's way too foggy. But they're like Himmler. It's funny because Rattle and Himmler have a conversation, and Rattle's like, you know, the weather forecast looks really bad. We may not be able to go in, you know, tomorrow night. And Himmler's like, whether the weather is favorable or not, you will be trying. There's no not doing it at this point. So they end up taking off. They successfully. Um, parachute onto the beach. It's in a very marshy area with you know beachhead. And on the way back, this is a part I kind of really enjoyed. Um, the the pilots, the German pilot in the in the British plane that they're flying, um, they're worried. They're like, okay, well, what if our own people see this plane and think that we're, we're this is a British plane? They're going to shoot us down. And that's what happens. They're flying. It's ba- such a ridiculous oversight. It's fucking dumb. It just, oh man, we're going to take this British plane in. The British aren't going to shoot us. It's going to be great. Then flying home. Oh, wait a minute. We look like a British plane. God damn it. Yeah. And they're, they're flying back to the Netherlands just, just for information. So there's a, there, I thought the way the scene was done was really good. Some, it is that scene is okay. So there's a couple of scenes in this, the, the, the scenes with the black market. I love. The scenes with the political procedural stuff, I love. Didn't think I would. And the scenes with the plane, I love. All stuff that I didn't expect to like. I I have a, a passage here because I think it. they're flying back and it's the pilot. His name's Garrick and it's his navigator and like radio man uh, whose name is uh, Bomler, I think it's called, or Bomler. And um, they're listening. I'm sorry, Garrick, Garrick, and Boimler are both Star Trek characters. I feel like you're wrong. I'm looking at the. I, I, I feel like you're mispronouncing both of these names. 
Okay, so I found in your notes the name, and I remember now how they pronounce it. Uh, it's Garica. Garica. Okay. Yep, for some reason, that E at the end has a pronunciation to it. All right, well, so so um, Garica is the pilot, and... Um, I, I don't know how Baumler or whatever Baumler. his name is is pronounced, but whatever, yeah. So, great, great scene, though. Garica's a great character. He might be one of the few Nazi characters I enjoy. He's He has, like, an interesting backstory where he's been denied this medal that he, he should have been given. Pilots, pilots are always, like, kind of good characters i don't know i just there's something he's just a hard-working man doing his job for the nazi party uh (laughs) so so they're flying back after dropping after the the you know uh steiner and his men jump out and land which goes off a lot smoother than i expected like they have this build up to like hey this guy doesn't know how to fucking parachute i don't think it's gonna work and then it, it kind of... Yeah, it's fine. kind of works. What, how, much, yeah. how much is there to know? I jump not, out of the plane? They're like, hey, this guy This guy does not have a parachute. There's going to be an enormous amount of fog, uh, poor visibility. Uh, we, might, we might need to call this off. I uh, know. We already made it. We're good. Don't call it off. We're there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> So Eagles landed. Yes, and that's that's the Eagles landed means they're they're on they're on the ground. Yep. Uh, Joanna Gray goes up to her secret compartment, opens the secret door, walks up her little staircase to the radio room, picks up the radio, and and calls in that code. Um, and then after that, the plane makes its way back, and they go, "Oh fuck, maybe our own people are gonna think we're British." And they, they, that's exactly what happens. And what they're doing is they're, they're flying and um, they hear over their headphones that like they hear that basically the radio transmissions of their the other German pilots. And they're like, oh, they see us. Oh, they're coming towards us. Fuck. But let me let me read this part for you. Um, Garrica nodded cheerfully. Then the smile vanished abruptly over his headphones. He heard a familiar voice. Hans Berger, the controller at his old unit. NJG7. Baumler touched his shoulder. That's Berger, isn't it? Who else, Garrica said. You've listened to him often enough. Steer 083 degrees, Berger's voice crackled through the static. Sounds as if he's leading a night fighter in for the kill, Baumler said. On our heading. Target 5 kilometers. So they, they, I loved, I just like thought that was well done, the way they're like, oh no, like that's that guy we know and he's going to come kill us. Um, and they end up getting shot up really bad. Um, and like, they actually get the, uh, uh, Garrica gets like shot by the plane and it's going to crash. So he tells Baumler like bail out, you know, get out while you can. I'll see if I can crash this plane or something. And Baumler goes yeah, into he the, goes down with the ship. Cause once again, fucking respectable, hardworking man so, for the Nazi party. So Baumler's trying to, <laughs> <laughs> Bom- Baumler's trying to... B- I always have to throw in that disclaimer. Yeah, it's important. Um, <laughs> so Baumler's trying to bail out, and this is I thought this part was pretty good, too. Dear God, don't let me burn, he thought. Anything but that. Then the, ha- yep. then the hatch eased back, and he poised for a moment and tumbled into the night. The Dakota, which is the plane, the Dakota corkscrewed and the port wing lifted. Baumler somersaulted. His head caught the tailplane a violent blow, even as his right hand fastened convulsively on the metal ring. He pulled his ripcord in the very moment of dying. The parachute opened like a strange pale flower and carried him gently down into darkness. Uh, 
I just thought that was like a, just a now that's well, poetry. That's some dad lit poetry. <laughs> but uh, uh, Garrica actually survives. I thought he was gonna die, but he like crash lands the plane and is like, "Damn, man!" Yeah, did he it. gets shot up. The, the descriptions of like the bolts coming through the fucking hall and like hitting him and stuff. Really good stuff. Great, great scene. Yeah. So from there, they're on the ground. They're 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 gonna they're going through with the mission once again. Uh, f- folks listening we're talking about how we like this character and we're talking about how we like that he survived it's pointless not a uh well it doesn't i like it doesn't really matter i so i liked that character enough that i i thought it was a, a cool he's a, he he might be the only character in this book that i like and i also like the black market guys but my, my point is like he might be the only nazi that i like but still the detail of him surviving makes no difference to the story no well i i I don't it I doesn't make a difference to the story but I think it has to do with some of the one of the themes of the story which I want to talk about once we get through the the, pl- the plot. But what so the very I'll go through the ending very quickly. What ends up happening is they land, they are going through with this ruse, they're like performing the role of these Polish They go and talk to the they they go and talk to the uh church and yeah. the, the that the, they get the church, they're like, hey, you know, uh, people have, uh, other um, training forces have been able to stay at the church before. It's happened before. I'm sure we'll get you guys in. And it does. They get him in. Yeah. And, you know, that might be the last time things go well. Yeah. Well, so we, we learned that uh, there's also an American uh, squadron or whatever. I, I'm not familiar with it. comes out of fucking nowhere in the story, too. Like, a person is out riding. Uh, right? They're riding a, a horse or something. And they their horse gets, like, out of control and runs away or something. And like It's Verica's a, sister. A, a, it's the it's the priest, the, the priest's sister, Father Verica. That's it. His sister. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the soldiers help her. And that's how they're introduced, which is very weird because I don't remember Verica's sister being a character until that scene. And then suddenly there's these American um, soldiers and they're there under operation. And once again, those of you that know what a heist movie is, you're like, ah, this is going to be used to throw a wrench into the works. And this is the first time this is the first time that I've made that joke that I can say that it does. But um uh, they introduce these characters and they're pretty cool i guess you know uh, well they're the, the, i think the they're main, especially the uncool point. uh that shafto character is is a, an enormous shafto sucks hard shafto sucks but i kind of i kind of love him because of how much he sucks he's hilariously um, so, in, so he's incompetent. like he's like a guy who's he's he's a he's incompetent and he's been being transferred around a bunch yes. and uh he's always looking for some sort of way to feel important he's an american just in case people didn't realize classic middle management exactly yes and his he he is he is um valor hungry he wants to be he wants to charge into battle um which means also his name is shafto so you know yeah he's a he's a blowhard but he is his unit is basically run by this i think it's like uh, Colonel or this uh, Henry or Harry Kane, who's you know a, a disciplined, smart soldier, and he's sort of the likable American guy. Um, but everyone kind of laughs at Shafto behind his back and is like, "Yeah, he's kind of an idiot, isn't he?" They introduce that they introduce those characters, and then like there's a large part of the book where they're not talked about, and then they get brought up again, which you know they would. Uh, but 
so how do we want to handle this, Connor? Why don't you you go ahead? <laughs> so they have their sweet little position in the church and everything is going hunky dory until a kid from the town falls into the river near this mill and one of the troops jumps in heroically to save him and uh they get the kid obviously they save the kid which is once again i mentioned this earlier it's the one good thing that they do that might have earned them a gravestone and they bring it up multiple times. They're like, yeah, but we saved that kid. Um, at any rate, uh, when they save that kid, there's a, a mishap. I th- right? One of them gets like s- sucked under the, the mill wheel, the water wheel. Yeah, he gets his skull crushed. Like yeah. they pull him out of the yeah. water. and Horrifically, graphically, they, they talk about this skull being crushed. And I was like, good God book do you did you really need to they're like well he looked normal but then they then they touched his head and it's like oh it's jelly yeah it's ridiculously graphic and i'm like ah okay but the the important thing is isn't the the surprise gore the important thing is this is the surprise uniform because underneath underneath his jump jacket uh he's wearing his full goddamn Nazi uniform with badges and everything, which is what they said they were going to do. And I don't understand why they were doing it at this point. Well, so they, they, the re the reason they do it to begin with is that it is a, it is against the Geneva convention to uh, like don the uniform of your, uh, an opposing force and like to kind of go as them. But they rationalize it, and yeah, this is. Yeah, but here's here's my thing. Here's my thing. Okay, okay. Here's my thing. Connor, Connor, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Do you want to know why I don't buy it, folks? Listening, I am not a World War Two historian. I am, however, a World War One historian. And uh, for those of you that don't know anything about World War One, Germany broke every single goddamn rule every single thing that you could do that's against the rules of war that's against rules that the world has put forth germany broke i'm this is not hyperbole look it up do because it's really interesting but like every single thing germany could do to break rules they did because in their mind in their opinion it's war and they found ridiculous ways to justify it. And now you, you fast forward a few years, literally just a few years, to World War II, and they're going to suddenly follow the Geneva Convention. I don't think it was because of rules, Connor. I think it was because of pride. They make a point to describe every medal each person has. So the idea of, like, order... Well, and, and that's is a, you know... Uh, in fascism, you know, the aesthetic is important. So these uniforms are hey, man, important. They, the, the, if there's one, if there's one thing I can do to um, give a compliment to the Nazis, they looked good. They looked slick. Hugo Boss, like mm-hmm. they, 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 they look. There's some real good-looking villains. It's, it's, it's. I think that's part of why they've been so solidified as good villains in like movies and stuff because they look real good. 
in this case, they, they, they kind of consider themselves bending the rules because what they're going to do is once the, their plan is that once they see Churchill and they're going to grab him and, you know, presumably like ki- when the jig is up, when the jig is up, they're going to throw off their jump jackets and and underneath they're going to have their superhero uniforms on. Very dramatic, you know. Yeah, they're going to take off their their suit and have their costume on underneath. And so so after this guy comes out of the water, he's dead. After, you know, very heroically saving this child, um, someone I think someone's trying to perform CPR on him. His coat is open and his full Nazi garb is shown. And the kids are like, Hey, that's not a, a Polish uniform. And everyone around is like, Yeah, you know what? You're right. That's not a Polish uniform. And I, I kind of love, I kind of love, I kind of love the simplicity of the German soldiers in this scene. And, and I, I disagree with their actions because they absolutely could have covered this up and continued their fucking ruse. But nope, they just very businesslike, very proper, very professional stand up, walk over to the car, pick up a radio. Oh, fucking jig us up, guys. We're we're uh, we're had. Yeah, I don't remember what the code is. There's something like the the the, 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 eagle, the eagle is ruined. The eagle is blown. That's it. The eagle is blown, and immediately all of them are like, "All right, cool. We don't have to pretend anymore." And they just start speaking in German and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, "Really, really?" And then at this point, I want to take back something I said earlier, Connor. This isn't a heist novel. It's a war novel. It is a war novel. The last, the ending of this is like, I'll say, so. okay, so what happens after that is they round everyone up, they put them in the church. Also, Harvey, Harvey, Harvey Preston is a little shit. He he is, he is really, he is uh, awful. But so, uh, um, via various means, whatever, um, that Pamela Verica, Verica, as you said, she she sees this happen, or she actually kind of hears it happen, and then runs and tells the Americans. And um, well, hold on, hold on. So there's actually this is another scene that I actually think is done fairly well. So um, if I remember correctly, it's her and uh, Molly, and it's one of the few times where I actually enjoy the Molly character, and um, they're like. We gotta go warn people. Uh, there's American troops that I bumped into. Let's go talk to them. And they need to figure out a way to do that. And if I remember correctly, they go to Joanna Gray's house. Yes, that's right. Yes, because they're because they're like Joanna Gray has a car. And. Uh, it's it's sort of a um I can't think of a good comparison but it's it's almost a Tarantino scene. Well, yes, cuz us as readers know that they're kind of walking into the lion's den there and you know that that But but the way the way it's played out feels very much like Tarantino direction. So they go to the house and um well, technically uh Molly doesn't. Molly Molly comes up with a very smart idea cuz Molly's like I'm going to take my horse Mm-hmm. We we can make two two uh, angles of attack at this. I can take my horse to warn them, and you can take the car to warn them. There's more of a chance of us succeeding. 
And so uh, Verica goes to Joanna Gray's house to get the car. And when she gets there, Joanna Gray is there. And she's like, the most horrible thing has happened, Joanna. Um, There's Nazi soldiers in the town. And uh, Joanna Gray's like, really? You don't say. That's, oh oh my my God. I can't believe it. And uh, yeah, I can't believe it. Pulls a gun. And uh, there's a tussle, which once again feels straight out of Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, the the she tries to lead her to the the um, basement, and uh, Verica gets the the jump on her and clubs her and knocks her into the basement. The gun goes off and just clips Verica's like head or and um, Joanna Gray gets toppled into the basement with the dog. And the door is shut and latched. Yeah. And and she she runs out of the house and gets into the car and drives off to try to warn the Americans. And she does. She gets there and passes out. And then uh, and uh, Shafto could not be more excited. He's like, hell. I love the way they treat her. They're like, they like put her on a couch. And give like, her some whiskey. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's. The, fucking the smoking and drinking in this book is uh, there's it's voluminous. I would just say <laughs> there's a lot of it. Um, more so, more so than the sexual content. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is on the we should if it's not on the dadlet checklist. Uh, I think we should. I think I, I don't think it's on our checklist, it sh- Connor, it, but I think we should add smoke smoking and drinking. Yeah, excessive to the checklist. It, well, yep. then this is we're doing it. Um, so yep. so then um, y- you know. Uh, Shafto want, wants to go to the village. Kane, the much more you know, reasonable, level-headed person, is like, we have to notify the, the war department that these paratroopers are here and that they intend to kidnap Churchill because uh, Verica hears that too and communicates that to the Americans. And Shafto is like... Which, which it's important to note, simultaneously to all of this, uh, Willoughby has gone to pick up Churchill. Right, yeah. Um, so, so Kane says, listen, we got to do the right thing. Call the War Department. Let them know this is going on. Shafto is like, I don't really want to do that. Let's get out there and fight. But then he's... I want to be a hero! Long story short, he says he's going to call the War Department. He doesn't. Which I think is only significant in the sense that, like... It kind of leads to the, the the idea that like this really happened and no one like only a few people know about this happening. I think that's why that was included. This was a secret a secret operation that was never on the books. So Kane, so Shafto is like, all right, get everyone, get in the jeeps, get get some ammunition. We're gonna we're gonna we're riding into battle, and Kane is sent off to intercept uh, Willoughby and Churchill. So so Churchill doesn't make it to the village and get kidnapped, and then basically, and he does that successfully. And then what follows is a uh, a pretty uh, I don't know I have trouble reading action scenes, especially when there's it's not good. There's a, as someone as someone who has read many Clive Cussler books and every Jack Reacher book except the last two, um, and just a lot of science fiction and fantasy in general, it's not a good action scene. I think that there, what's difficult is like to reference where people are located and where they move. This is it's hard. They never they never do a good job of laying out the streets and buildings of the town 
they don't spend enough time in town. They spend most of the book at um, Devlin's house, like his cottage, or at Joanna Gray's cottage. Those are like the and the church. Like those are the three locations that, that the book spends the most time around. So, like the church is definitely the crux of this action scene. Um, as like there are hostages inside still, and you know jeeps roll up guns are fired there's mounted guns on jeeps uh people take cover behind shit uh it's not important like i i i really can't describe it clearly but the hostages more or less make it out and survive um the germans fall the germans most of the germans just die right off the bat like it's it's a meat grinder well actually what happens to begin with, and, it, and I was going to say, this is an instance where I could I could have used a map or a diagram, like we've seen in like the Clive Cussler uh, books. Like sometimes there's a diagram. Cussler's Cussler's great with diagrams. He loves diagrams. I, I and also kind of would have fit in with the idea that this book is a is like the writer's research and that they had to like dig up if the story. Just, if we could just have like a just like a um, like a street map of Studley Constable, it would been great. So what happens is Shafto rushes into battle and the germans are are in really good position and they kill a bunch of american soldiers right off the bat shafto also gets killed but what he's doing is he goes to joanna gray's house and she shoots him in the head and um, then she is also killed when another soldier basically just like mows her down with a machine gun after she shoots shafto so shafto has a very yeah mm, they 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 kind of she kind of falls back into that like secret chamber with the radio and there's yeah. like a, a inglorious bastard style like discussion, and then they shoot up uh, up into the room and kill each other, um, and then they find her. But um, I do love. I, I do want to make note that when he makes contact with the Nazis, he steps out of the jeep and is chewing on a, cig- a cigar, uh, j- not lit, just 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 chewing on it. He he can't. <laughs> well, and this is another thing is that like this this sort of attempt to uh humanize the nazis and everything it's like it seems like like the americans are the bad like they try they try poorly to make the americans seem bad or incompetent not bad in like a moral sense but just sort of like bad at what they're doing undisciplined and sort of like emotional and kind of cavalier cowboy types yeah, they, they make that's that's I was just gonna say cowboy types, which is ironic because we like several books ago. Who knows when it'll get posted in order? But several books ago, we talked about Dirk Pitt and his As, cowboy cavalier attitude. Uh, this is done worse than that. Well, it gets people killed in this. It's like it gets it means you rush yeah. into a situation and get killed. So, anyways, there's a there's a there's a, a like a jeep battle basically that proceeds. And um, Kane ends up returning to the town after warning Churchill, and he gets involved in the fight too. And which, uh, once again, scene that I liked, rolls up on a rolls up on a car. Hey, 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 hey! You guys can't go to town. There's a squadron of Nazis there, ready to kidnap the prime minister. And then a window rolls down, and fucking Winston Churchill's like, "Come here and talk to me." Yeah. So so Kane shows up. There's a the the fight continues. They end up, you know, um 
killing most of the Nazis. There's one scene actually that in the fight that I liked, which was where Kane and this other guy were on this truck with like an anti-aircraft machine gun, and there are these two kind of like the last holdout Nazis in this tower or something, and they're like, oh god, you know, they're they're really dug in up there and they just drive the jeep through like the bottom of the tower and fire the anti-aircraft gun like up through the floor at them it was just it was like a very much like no we got to end this right now let's go let's you know let, we're, we're not going to be subtle about this again americans yeah. you know uh we're so long 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 story short after the bad action scene um a, a detail that we failed to mention and that the book failed to mention well is that there's a uh underground tunnel out of the church and um, several of the characters uh, Mo- Molly shows up to try to save Devlin and she helps them escape through this underground tunnel and uh, so they, they make it out hey are we happy Hooray. yeah it's Steiner De- Devlin and this other soldier uh, Ritter who's a German soldier who's who's pretty badly wounded and Devlin is kind of like helping him you know limp limp uh, to safety yeah aren't we happy Devlin is a good person all right whatever so then they they make it to a car they they basically escape the town but do you want to tell you want to handle this part no no please so they're 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 preparing to go to the pickup area and um well, two things happen. Well, some some important stuff happens. One is that Devlin forgets that he he left his radio in his cabin, and he's like, "I got to go back to the cabin to pick that up, so I can tell the boat, you know, where to pick us up." He goes to the cabin, and those two cops we mentioned earlier are there waiting for him. Hey, y'all remember when I mentioned that the cops were going to get involved and it was going to be a wrench thrown into the works? Well, here's the the wrench is here. But what ends up happening is he sort of no right it's um, he gets he gets the jump on them and kills shoots one of them you know in the head and shoots the other in like the shoulder and and that's it there's no nothing else about yeah. it you know um, they it's so, <laughs> that subplot is done um, but uh, so but then um, Steiner you know being the so, the good soldier he is is like. Listen, I gotta see. I gotta at least try and finish this mission. I'm going after Churchill. Um, you guys go. I'm gonna stay. See if I can find him and kill him. I actually love the Steiner story from this point on, up until a certain point. So like, there's a uh, like a motorcycle cop that responds to a car that's like flipped over, or down a ravine or whatever and uh Steiner's there and kind of like tricks the cop knocks him out takes his 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 uh motorcycle and uh he puts on the outfit and just rolls like hitman style just rolls up to uh people here there's a video game called hitman (laughs) <laughs> you dress up as different people so that you can get close to the person you're trying to kill. It's not important, but just so you understand the reference. So he puts on the outfit, drives up to the house where uh, Winston Churchill's going to be, walks in as a cop. Nobody questions him or asks for documentation or anything. 
starts walking through the place. I don't remember how they figure out that something's off, but uh, there's like a scene with like billowing curtains, and uh, he shows up and pulls a gun on Churchill, doesn't shoot, just kind of stands there, and then people bust into the room because they figured it out, and uh, shoot him up. It's Harry, yeah. it's Harry Kane, the American soldier who, yeah, basically jumps in and then and shoots Steiner. And st- I still don't remember how they figured it out, but they figured out something was wrong. It's because uh, they they um, he shows up as a as an like a motorcycle MP and also like a messenger. Like he claims that he he's like delivering a message, and someone says something to Harry Kane like, "Oh, that messenger just got here," and he's like, "What messenger? There's there shouldn't be any messengers coming here." And then they're like, "Oh shit, it's it. Steiner." Yeah. So yeah, so they bust it. They bust in and shoot him, and it's implied that like he didn't kill Winston Churchill. He just wanted to know that he could. Yeah, yeah, and and Churchill says like you know for for whatever else he was, he was an honorable and good soldier. You know, he kind of like gives him a nod of respect after he's you know after he was almost killed. Hey, listeners! Hey, listeners at home, um, or wherever you are at work in the car. Do you think that's cool? Do you like do you like um do you like a guy confronting Winston Churchill? Do you like Winston Churchill in the back of a car talking to an American soldier and being like, "Hey, come tell me what you wanted to say." Do you like Winston Churchill? Do you think he's a cool person? Do you like Winston Churchill? If your answer is yes, cool. He's not in this book. Yes, that's that's correct. It, that was not Winston Churchill. <laughs> um, actually, let me do this. Get this. These characters out of the way real quick too. Devlin leaves Molly behind, and him and Ritter do escape they survive okay but that's that's so that kind of ends the mission that's the end of this story Winston Churchill is not killed and as Chris said Winston Churchill is not killed because that was not Winston Churchill it's some sort of actor that's supposed to look like Winston Churchill that they discovered in an act in England somewhere that's like hey this guy does a really good Winston Churchill impression and decided to like send him around as a decoy uh and it's it's like the book's way of being like hey we understand that if you look up historical accounts you can understand that winston churchill was at a completely different location during the events of this book and they talk about that even they're like yeah winston churchill couldn't possibly have been in that location because he was in this other location he was in tehran and this this is revealed in the final chapter which again it returns to that sort of framing narration jack higgins is back and he's like and that and wasn't that a cool story oh and it wasn't even winston churchill so that's that's how the the book ends i thought that i which i hate because it let's let's do a checklist were the cops important? No. Was the the pilot that survived the plane attack important? No, but he was cool. Uh, was the was Steiner's dad that was under torture to get Steiner to do what they wanted important? He died, by the way. We talked about this barely. He died. Does it matter? No, because Steiner died. Also, there was really no point at which Steiner was like calling them and being like. Put my dad on the phone, or I'm not gonna do the mission. <laughs> I want um, proof of life. 
Yeah, exactly. So that wasn't important at all. They, they do. They, there's a whole scene where they are wor- sort of worried. They're like, "Oh man, he's not doing well. He's gonna die." And they bring it up to Himmler, and Himmler's like, "I don't fucking care. I'm Heinrich Himmler." Uh, and they they he dies, and they're like, "Oh well, I hope that guy doesn't care." Uh, d- was uh was any of anything in this book important? No. All right, listeners, thanks for taking this journey with us. We're going to end things there. There's a lot to talk about with this book. Our next episode is going to focus more on the themes, and we are going to be doing our famous cast-off segment where we talk about how we would cast this book if it was a movie. Thanks again. Uh, If you have any questions or comments, find us on Instagram at dadlitpodcast.com. Or you can email us, dadlitpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.